Hello and welcome to SETI Seminars, brought to you by the Oakley Literature Festival. This podcast series will introduce you to a wide range of topics as leading experts break down years of study into bite-sized talks. From 18th century murder mysteries to modern US history, and from psychiatry to post-colonial literature. Alan House is the Professor of Liaison Psychiatry at the University of Leeds. In this podcast, he talks about loneliness, self-isolation and social distancing, examining what the COVID-19 pandemic can tell us about social influences on mental health. Hello and welcome to this podcast about social isolation loneliness and mental health in the COVID pandemic. I'm Alan House. I'm a liaison psychiatrist and I've worked in Leeds both as a consultant in the NHS and in the university in our medical school as the professor of liaison psychiatry there. The liaison in my title refers to the relationship between physical and mental health services. Most liaison psychiatrists work as I have in acute hospitals, and now every acute hospital in England has a liaison psychiatry service. So the effect of severe illness and its treatment on mental health is really core business in liaison psychiatry. Mental health is really too big a topic to cover in a short talk, so what I'm going to do is restrict what I have to say to one area, which is self-harm and suicide. So, let's start with a general question. How might physical health or its treatment affect mental health? First, of course, physical illness has direct effects on the body, which might include pain, breathlessness, disfigurement, paralysis and its associated disability, or changes in what are often called cognitive or intellectual function when the physical illness affects the nervous system. Physical illness can also have social effects. They can be financial. For example, it's well known that people living with chronic illness are financially worse off than the general population. It can affect employment and it can have an impact on relationships. For example, when a partner or a parent or a child becomes a carer. We think of these things, the physical and social effects of illness, as stressful that is, as having psychological effects. And one of the ways we explore these psychological effects is through in-depth interviewing, exploring the exact nature of the illness experience and its meaning. Sometimes this is called life events research. We then analyse these interviews by exploring the themes and ideas that emerge. This is usually called qualitative research to distinguish it from quantitative research, which involves counting or measuring things. So when we do this, the major themes that emerge are the experience of illness as a loss and illness as a threat. Losses can be of all sorts. Loss of function, we've already touched on bodily function. Loss of social position, loss of social status, and what has been called loss of cherished ideas 
thoughts about what might be possible in your life to come. Illness as a threat is fairly obvious, particularly when that illness is life-threatening. Now, you don't always hear these ideas spelled out, loss and threat, but it's easy to see them in public discussion about depression, which is the emotional response to loss, or anxiety and so-called PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which are the emotional responses to threat. Less widely discussed are ideas about illness or its treatment as restriction or as a dilemma. These are ideas to which I'll return in a while. These aspects of illness, its physical, psychological and social impact, have to be taken together in consideration when we're thinking about its effects on the individual and they go by the rather clumsy name in the specialist world of biopsychosocial. The coronavirus infection of course has many physical effects. Uh, it's infamous for its effect on smell and taste which tells us it has some effect on the nervous system and one of its most important impacts is on the lungs. But for this talk what I want to focus on is the social effect of two related public health measures that restrict our contact with other people. One is lockdown uh, and its latest incarnation in the United Kingdom in the tier system and the other is individual self-isolation or shielding. Well, a word first about terminology. Living alone simply means not sharing your household with somebody else. It's extremely common. Uh, in England, about 8 million adults live alone and that number is rising. More likely to live alone are older people and people on low income. Social isolation is different. It's a social state we could describe as being cut off from people. And loneliness is different again. It's an emotional state that may go either with living alone or with being socially isolated. So today our focus is on social isolation, cut-offness from people. Uh, in the current context, we could also define it as enforced being alone. Enforced, that is, either legally or by social pressure, such as medical advice or government guidance. We know something about how people experience being in this position from interviews our group has been undertaking during the pandemic, especially with people who have used mental health services before the onset of the pandemic. So the enforced element, people describe as feeling like you've lost control over some part of your life. Loss of control. For some people, it can feel like a punishment. For many people, it feels like a restriction. It limits the options in their life. The dilemma here is about complying or rebelling, resolved for some, particularly the young, by illegal partying or other gatherings, but it doesn't really apply in many situations, the opportunity to rebel, uh, and it certainly doesn't apply for many people in the COVID pandemic. Being alone is certainly can constitute a loss, loss of contact with other people, loss of the opportunity to share and confide 
and it can lead to a sense of disconnectedness or lack of belonging. It can also come with a sense of loss of social position and with it for some people prone to that way of thinking already a sense of loss of self-worth. Well, how might these experiences to relate to what we know about why people self-harm? We've known for a long time that not all acts of self-harm are attempts at suicide. What other reasons might there be? To answer this question, we recently undertook a study with a method that's not been used very much in this field before. We took a series of statements about why people self-harm gleaned from first-hand accounts of people with that experience and identified through reviewing published literature. And we asked a sample of adults with a history of self-harm to sort the statements according to how much they agreed that they were personally relevant to them. We then analysed the sorts, looking for patterns or clusters of people who responded in the same way. For our purposes here, we found three relevant groups. People said they self-harmed to respond to bad thoughts and memories, for example, to a need for self-punishment. They self-harmed to manage their mental state. It gave them a sense of being in control of at least something uh, and an opportunity to change how they feel. And it was a means for some people of communicating their distress to other people. Now, it's not difficult to see the results of this study and how they connect with the effects of isolation. What about suicide? We have three main sources of information here. Uh, we can interview people who have survived an attempt to end their lives. We can look at the interviews that we've had with people who subsequently go on to take their own life. And we can use a completely different approach the quantitative study of suicide in populations, what's called epidemiology. What that tells us is that suicide is much commoner in men, and particularly in men in middle life, in people who live alone, either long term or more recently because of bereavement, and people with alcohol problems, and people who have recently lost employment so that we know, for example, that economic recession is a major risk for suicide. Uh, the American psychologist Thomas Joyner has put these things together and other similar observations to suggest two really important risks for suicide. One is a sense of disconnectedness from society and relationships, what he calls thwarted belonging. And the other is a sense of personal burdensomeness, which is often linked to hopelessness. Again, these look highly relevant to this question of the mental health impact of social isolation. So the stage seems set for an increase in self-harm and suicide. What do we know and how do we know whether these things have in fact increased in frequency? Back to epidemiology here. What we know about self-harm comes mainly from two sources. One is hospital attendance, because many people go to hospital for treatment of the physical effects of self-harm. And you may have heard in the media a little while ago 
evidence that there'd been a big increase in self-harm attendances among young women. That, that evidence came from an organisation called NHS Digital, which collects and collates information on hospital attendances, including attendances in the emergency department. The second way we come to know about self-harm rates is through national surveys, such as the Adult Psychiatric Morbidity Survey, where a sample of people in the general population is asked to complete uh, an interview with a researcher. Now, both these uh, means of data collection have obviously been seriously disrupted by the COVID pandemic. Hospital attendances fell sharply at the time of the pandemic, and although they've recovered to some extent, they've only just got back to the levels they were before the pandemic, which means that for most of 2020, hospital attendance is unlikely to have been a good reflection of underlying rates. In the suicide figures, again, we have troubles with collecting accurate information. The usual way that we identify suicides is through official labelling of deaths uh, in England and Wales through the coroner. Uh, the numbers are small in national terms uh, and there are typically delays of months uh, before we get accurate figures. A group in Manchester has been collecting information internationally about um, suicide rates and you may again have seen in the news uh, the surprise caused by their observation that there doesn't seem to have been an early increase in suicide. Well, why might that be? If all the risks are there and yet it doesn't look immediately as if either self-harm rates or suicide rates have increased dramatically, what's happening? Well, that raises a question about what protects people from the risks. And there are two strong recurrent findings from research. One is about the importance of social support as a protection. Social support means different things to different people. It can be uh, individual. Uh, and we know that people who have a close confiding relationship, even with just one or two other people in their lives, uh, are protected to some extent from serious adversity. Uh, that, of course, that access to social support has indeed been restricted by social isolation. The second sort of support is a practical one, information or access to services. And that, in mental health terms, is provided by mental health services and by the third sector. And again, that access to that sort of support has been severely restricted. There's a third sort of social support, which is harder to put a finger on in some ways, and is sometimes called social capital or related to the idea of social cohesion. The idea that we all live in a society characterised by a network of wider relationships that are built on trust and belonging and a sense of mutual obligation. Here, for example, has been an interesting suggestion that's arisen from research following the Japanese tsunami. Uh, immediately after that tsunami, there was no increase, apparently, at all in suicide. 
and not, not so for the next year or two. And then at two years and beyond, uh, there does seem to have been an increase. The suggested explanation for that is that immediately there was a strong social response to the disaster with a sense that people were all in it together and pulling together and trying to help each other and that the impact came later when there was less obviously immediately to do and people started feeling more isolated with their grief and loss. The second protective factor is hopefulness, the sense that we're not in a permanent state of affairs, uh, which again you'd think ought to apply in the COVID pandemic, although there's a certain amount of scepticism, isn't there, from time to time about the uh, reassurances we get that this is going to be temporary. So in summary, social isolation has features we'd expect to represent risks. It represents a loss of control. The social isolation is enforced in some way or another. And it represents a reduction in social support. On the other hand, it comes with a sense of social cohesion, shared adversity. Most people recognise that they're not on their own with this. And it comes with a recognition that this is a time-limited phenomenon that if we can only stick it out for this year and perhaps the beginning of next year, then things will improve. Looking to the future, what's likely to happen in this rapidly changing novel environment is unclear, but the next major influence on mental health will almost certainly be the coming economic recession. This isn't so novel as a stressor, and we know that economic recession and its associated unemployment and financial problems, loss of social status, does cause mental health problems and is associated with an increase in self-harm and suicide. So we have a new adversity that will come that needs a response, that, but, but that muddies the waters in relation to our question about the relation of social isolation to mental health. I think there are two main take-home messages from this state of affairs. The first is how difficult it is to be really sure of an apparently simple question, like has social isolation in the current pandemic led to an increase in the suicide rate? Social isolation isn't a straightforward experience for some people, it involves major loss of contact with somebody who's important to their mental well-being. For other people it's an intrusion that limits their opportunities. For others it makes very little difference if they uh, live on their own, they don't mind that and it doesn't cause loneliness for them uh, and it doesn't affect their employment prospects. At the same time it can be difficult to um, understand the exact impact of a particular stress or when there are several things happening together. And at the moment, the single most important thing coming is this question of economic recession. And then finally, we have this difficulty of actually measuring what's happening. Uh, uh, the news is full of uh, reported deaths from COVID um, and in some sense, they're easier to count 
and these rather more complex ideas about mental health. Uh, my other take-home message is a more positive and hopeful one, and that is to remember that is in all other adversity, it's social factors that can help us most. Support from individuals and from helping organisations and the resilience that comes from social cohesion and concern for the vulnerable are our greatest resource as a society. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining this SETI seminar. We hope you've enjoyed listening. If you would like to learn more about this and other topics in the series, then reading lists are available in the episode description of your podcast app. Or you can check out our website, which is ilkleylitfest.org.uk. Until next time, don't forget to like, rate and subscribe.